Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll discuss President Biden's health care initiative for underserved communities, candidates lined up to run for Congress in North Carolina, and could a national gun registry be just around the corner? Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, Donna King, Editor-in-Chief of Carolina Journal, and Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Jonah, let's start with Biden's health care initiative for underserved communities. Well, as we just celebrated another Thanksgiving in this COVID era, we think about the more than 700,000 Americans who have died. And why has America suffered so much? Well, Americans are inherently unhealthy. And why are they unhealthy? Because a good part of the country is obese. And why are they obese? Many of them don't have access to adequate health care. They don't have good fitness. And why don't they have good access to health care? Well, in many marginalized communities, there just isn't. I mean, it's a business model, what we have for health care, for better or worse. They don't have the money to support more nurses. They don't have the money for the education. They don't have the money for the student debt. And so what the Biden administration is doing, and they're using part of the American Rescue Plan, is to devote about a billion and a half dollars to try and shore up some of this access and basically the supply of healthcare professionals to these marginalized and underserved communities. And how do they do that? A lot of the money is for scholarships. It's not so much of a job shortage, it's a skills shortage. When we talk about people not applying for jobs, there aren't enough nurses, there aren't enough EMTs, paramedics. It's a skills shortage. You can't just come off the street and get these jobs. You have to have education. You have to have certification. You have to have a graduation for these very specialty positions. And if you don't have access to those classes, if you need to okay. take transportation to get there, that's tough for people who are in poor areas or where things are very far apart in rural communities. Nelson, do we have a similar program like this in North Carolina? Yes, this state budget invests quite a bit in rural uh, health care by expanding programs like NC STEP, which is our statewide telepsychiatry program that we're expanding around the state, AHEC, which is the area health education centers, and that's a statewide uh, network uh, that's operated by the UNC system with a mission to build the healthcare uh, workforce in rural and underserved areas. They work with around 3,700 uh, pre-college students each year. They offer graduate medical residencies. Uh, over the years, they have produced over 1,500 physicians for the state of North Carolina, over two-thirds of which actually do stay in the state. Uh, they also train over uh, 
215,000 uh, health professionals each year do some retraining. Uh, Duke's also involved in this particular network. Okay. And probably the most important uh, investment this year was $215 million for the new Brody School of Medicine at ECU. Hell of a huge impact in rural. Donna, way in here. Well, I think it's important, particularly this um, Brody School of Medicine at ECU. ECU has always traditionally served a lot of rural communities, particularly in eastern North Carolina, and building that labor pipeline is critical for serving uh, rural infrastructure for healthcare. Um, I think it's interesting how the White House uh, announced this. They had Vice President Kamala Harris make that presentation, make that uh, announcement about this. Uh, she's struggled lately in her ratings, in her in her popularity, and some of the issues that she's taken cool. on. Um, low, low approval numbers. So I think giving her this particular project to advance really helps to bolster her credibility and, and hopefully let her ride what may be a really popular program uh, moving into the next uh, election. Mitch, put this in context. The most interesting thing to me about this is that, as Jonah mentioned, this is money that comes from that $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that was passed back in the spring we really haven't seen the Biden administration doing a whole lot to promote that plan ever since it was passed. This could be the type of thing that he could have used as a political victory lap for months That's a and great months point and because months. Because redundancy works. Yeah, I mean, basically, we had heard right before the election that the Biden administration really hadn't done anything. They hadn't passed the infrastructure bill. They hadn't passed that Build Back Better plan. Well, they did pass this bill and didn't spend a whole lot of time promoting it until now, eight months later. Okay, I want to move on and talk politics. They're sure. lining up, Donna, they are. to run for Congress in North Carolina. They are. They are. So uh, with new congressional maps approved, we've got a lot of lawmakers who are currently in the North Carolina Senate, North Carolina House, jockeying for position to figure out where they're going to run. Now, we've had a couple of big retirements in the Democrats. Uh, of course, uh, Representative David Price in the fourth has announced he's retiring. And more recently, uh, G.K. Butterfield, Representative Butterfield in the first, announced that he is not going to run again, that he's going to retire afterwards. So we're seeing uh, a shifting of folks that are interested in running for them, among them Representative uh, uh, Erica Smith from the North Carolina legislature. Uh, one of the things that's important to note is these both of these members uh, ha readily, handily won their districts. Uh, G.K. Butterfield, I think, has never won by less than 70 percent uh, in the first district, but he says that he's not going to run again because he calls the new maps partisan gerrymanders and uh, is hoping that, that they will be overturned through legal maneuvers. But we're really also seeing uh, Madison Cawthorn has decided that he's not going to run in his district where he currently resides. He's going to uh, run there in the 13th instead. So there's really a really shuffling of positions, people running in different places. Uh, the filing candidate filing period starts on December 6th, runs through the 17th. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these, a lot of members of the le state legislature looking to run for Congress now, move to Washington in their districts. Mitch, what will you be watching? What races will you be watching? There are a lot of them that are very interesting. I think among the most interesting to me are the 4th District, which is kind of an open seat now where you're seeing uh, Ben Clark is a state senator, a Democrat, who had been talking for a while about going to Congress. He wants to go for this seat. Uh, there are also some interesting Republicans. John Zoka, who has served in the State House, is uh, interested and has officially announced he's going to run. Kelly Daughtry, the daughter of longtime Republican House member Leo Daughtry, is looking at that seat. That's an interesting one. 
the 6th district, which is the one uh, that David Price would be in if he decided to run again, that's one where you've seen a number of Democrats come forward. The first one who really talked about it was Wiley Nicholas, state senator, but now Valerie Fouché has been talking about it. She seems to be now the, the, the one that people are galvanizing around. So I think those are going to be very interesting. The 7th is going to be interesting. Does Mark Walker, who's been running for Senate, decide to get into this one? Yeah, and how does that impact the Senate race if he gets out, Nelson? Well, Walker would uh, leave a huge boost for Ted Budd. It gives him the inside track on social conservatives. That's right. And both of them are from the triad. So you would have a unification of that region behind one candidate. And hey, who wants two senators from Charlotte? Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you, you think, uh, Jonah, that these districts will withstand a court challenge? Well, that's a question. And I'm not a jurist, so I can't really answer that. But that's certainly a wild card. And the other thing that I think is fascinating is that in North Carolina, you don't have to live in the district to run in that district. Right. And when you have these kind of open seats in new districts, well, now you start to see the primary system and some of the vices of that system. You're going to have intra-party fighting where in the six where David Price was, you can have who could be the next member of the squad, Nita Alam, uh, come from the 6th District, or maybe a more moderate Wiley Nickel, or maybe Kathy Manning, who now doesn't have a district in the triad, says, well, wait a minute, I want to be a moderate, you know, uh, voice. blood sport. It is. And look, look what's happened with Madison Cawthorn switching right. districts. And it's also interesting because Richard Hudson, who was the longtime representative from Fort Bragg, well, if he runs in technically where he lives, he won't be that military uh, presence anymore. So it's yeah, we don't know what's going to happen with the lines. That could be very different. And that's obviously a huge wild card. But no matter what, when you have these open seats, Yes, you kind of open yourself up to now these intra-party fighting of, are we going to go radical or are we going to go pragmatic? Well, I frankly love it. Let's change topics. <laughs> okay, and I want to talk about uh, the gun rights advocates are getting concerned that there could be a gun registry, a national gun registry. Republican U.S. Representative Michael Cloud of Texas and 51 of his colleagues, including, we've mentioned them already, Ted Budd and Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, uh, signed on to a letter that goes to the acting director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. There's concern about a proposed ATF rule because the concern is that this eventually could lead to a national gun registry, despite the fact that Congress has said in something called the Firearms Owners Protection Act, there can't be a national gun registry. So here's why there's concern. What the rule would do would end this 20-year burn rule that says uh, that the people who sell firearms have to get rid of the records after 20 years. Why is this a big deal? Well, if a, a firearm seller uh, closes up shop, they have to give all the records to the ATF. So if there is this rule that ends, then 20-year-old gun records will end up going to the ATF. That's why these members of Congress think that this is a concern. That's why they've sent the letter. I'm not sure that this is going to uh, stop the Biden administration from moving forward with it, but it's certainly raising this issue. Nelson, is the Biden administration trying to bypass Congress? Well, they are. I mean, it's a fourth time this year that the administration has put forward an agency rule or an executive order without the proper constitutional authority. And that's you know, one of the main arguments that Biden had in his election was to restore democracy. Yet on a host of these regular very hot orders, what are you talking well, about? That's right. But on a host of these hot button issues, the president is exercising unilateral uh, authority without a specific congressional mandate. And in this case, as Mitch said, there are congressional laws on the books 
to the contrary of what the ATF could be doing with these um, uh, with this data and information on all these gun owners. So it will all end up in court. It will end up before the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think it's going to be very difficult for them to prevail. Donna, collecting data on Americans is a big concern, isn't it? It, it is a big concern, and it's something that we saw a lot with the uh, with the school. Um, demonstrations from parents at school boards. We had that that went through DOJ and the FBI. But I think what this really is is um, exactly what Nelson said: that you have executive agencies that are creating rules uh, that really should be going through Congress. If you can't get it through Congress, then it shouldn't be instituted at the agency level um, by the executive branch. And this federal gun registry, you already are not allowed to do it. It's on the books. It's part of this law, and uh, you see these agencies circumventing uh, Congress to get them on the books. Joni, your thoughts, my friend? President Trump went around Congress to provide funding for the wall because Congress couldn't get it done. President Biden is maybe using these executive agencies to do something that Congress isn't getting done. Same with immigration, same with a whole host of issues. So Congress's inability to pretty much do anything, even though many of these things like expanded background checks, uh, you know, uh, gun uh, bump stocks, you know, very popular with the American people. Explain what bump stocks are. uh, It's a tool to make a semi-automatic weapon feel like an automatic weapon and discharge a projectile and bullets more often. I think when it comes to guns, and I realize I'm opening up a huge can of worms here when I mention. That's right. We'll give you your email. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) The Kyle Rittenhouse case, before we get to the legality of whatever, the self-defense, most Americans are probably thinking, well, how did a 17-year-old just in general walk around with a weapon of war? How does that just happen? So Congress is not doing anything. I think a lot of people would dispute that that's a weapon of war. Don't you think, Mitch? A lot of people think it's a very common weapon, uh, but other than the Rittenhouse case, the, the most interesting thing to point out about this is if this rule goes forward, then basically anything that the, uh, that a gun seller has collected after the year 2001 could be in the hands of the federal government by the time all is said and done. That's what really has prompted these members of Congress to raise concerns. Donna, to wrap this up in about 30 seconds. Well, I mean, I think that... that there's such a broad issue, exactly like what you're saying. There's a broad issue. There's a lot of concern from different people about gun rights. Um, but it, this is really about collecting the data of individual Americans and whether or not they have a gun and what kind. And that's something that the federal government is forbid from doing. Okay, I want to move on. Great job. House passed this week some uh, reform measures for elections. Talk to us about that. Yes, the House recently took up three uh, election reform bills, S-326, the Election Day Integrity Act, which would align North Carolina with 32 other red and blue states in requiring absentee ballots to be received by the local Board of Elections on Election Day, or at least by Election Day, in order to be counted in the vote, Um, H-259. The Election Integrity Act uh, requires voting machines to be made in America. You would think that everybody would be for that. Uh, I would also uh, 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 strengthen the procedures for ensuring that non-citizens are not registered to vote and and also have um, post-election audits as well. Uh, S-725. would prohibit private on the money. Side. Yes, uh, another Senate bill, two Senate bills here, and a House right. bill uh, would prohibit private money in election administration. In other words, it would stop uh, the Mark Zuckerbergs and others of the world who are selectively trying to 
finance activities at local boards of elections. Uh, he did that with 33 of the 100 counties in That's North Carolina. That's the first time we've ever seen that, right? We've never Saw seen that. And 20... I think that bill, you know, raises very clear uh, ethical issues uh, out there. I mean, you certainly wouldn't want, uh, the Democrats wouldn't want Trump to be sponsoring uh, polling places on, on election day. So unfortunately, these bills uh, all uh, were passed on party line votes, so they're not likely to be enacted, but they are reforms that could come back in the future. Donna, are they setting this up? That's a good point. Are, are Republicans setting this up for a future session? Um, I Perhaps think that, when they have a veto-proof majority. Well, I think that we'll we'll see more and more election and like election integrity measures and, and reforms. But I think the Zuckbucks one is particularly interesting, and we actually saw Arnold Schwarzenegger, Republican, um, do something similar. Uh, so keeping private money off of the, out of the polling places, I think, is one of the big ones. Um, and you're going to see a lot of these cleanup uh, bills happening ahead of 2022, certainly. Uh, one of the measures also means that Election Day, close of business, close of the polls on Election Day, is when absentee ballots are due. Uh, and that's something that a lot of folks say, OK, well, what about, you know, the ones that are mailed the day before the election? Well, close of business. Close of the polls on election day is when they're due. And that's where it was the prior to the pandemic, pandemic, right? The, well, there was, there was, and it, it it means that when you don't know how many are outstanding at the end of election day, it it has some uncertainty, and there's a lot of suspicion and transparency problems, and that's what we saw a lot of in 2020. John, critics say that uh, Republicans want to stifle uh, people's ability to vote. Well, prior to the pandemic, the law had been if it was postmarked by Election Day and arrived by November 6th, then yes, it's allowed to vote. And that gives people, if they can't get to the polls, to actually vote on Election Day. And let's remember, candidates are campaigning until Election Day. Most Americans, or all Americans, have the right to choose up until Election Day. So how are you giving people the right to choose who may be be choosing at the last minute who they want to govern them on election day if they can't get that vote in on election day. Mitch. Now, people are going to respond to the rules however they are. I mean, if you tell people that if you're going to vote by mail, you got to send it in a few days early so it's there by election day, that's what people will do. We already have more than a couple of weeks of early voting. So people, even though people might be campaigning up to election day, as Jonas said, Is early voting a, lot of people, a good thing? Or should people just vote on the day of the election? Uh, that is certainly a policy question. My personal take on it is it was much better when everyone voted on Election Day, but a lot of people like early voting because they don't like standing in the lines. I don't think that train, I don't think that uh, horse is going back in the barn. We're going to have early voting. Okay, we're going to go to the most underreported story of the week. Mitch? All right, there's another sign that Toyota is seriously looking at North Carolina for this uh, battery plant for electric cars. Uh, we're talking about the Greensboro Randolph mega site that's located just south of Guilford County. The state budget includes up to $320 million in incentives for the project for a project of this type that brings a billion dollars of investment and 1,750 jobs to that area, which this plant would seem to fit in with. And we learned this week from the Army Corps of Engineers that the owners of this property have asked for permission to move dirt, which those who are in the know suggest is a sign that something's going to happen. Jonah. We all remember the images of the frantic departure from Afghanistan, but what happened to all those Afghans? About 80,000 of them are living in the country at 
Army bases, the safe havens, one of them being Joint Base McGuire-Dix, Lakehurst in New Jersey. And about 55 airmen from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base are helping in what's called Liberty Village. They are actually assisting these Afghans. It's a remarkable job they're doing in basically learning to adjust to American life, learning job skills, learning English. And they're doing this. Uh, these people, I mean, these, these airmen who would normally work on munitions or on aircraft are folding laundry, are doing civic patrols, are teaching and playing soccer. It's, it's amazing, and we're very thankful for their service, whatever their job is. Donna. Very interesting. Uh, the United States has fallen out of the top five countries in the world for economic freedom. The Fraser Institute puts out a poll, uh, puts out an index every year. The United States now ranks sixth behind Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, and Who's Georgia. the Fraser Institute? So the Fraser Institute looks at economic freedom throughout the world, and this is, this, this is their annual ranking. But now what they're saying is that the United States has dropped down in terms of uh, privately owned property and a legal system that treats all equally and uh, even handed enforcement of contracts and stable monetary environment. It should be alarming. We really need to be looking looking at making sure that we have a free market economy. And these guys are based in Canada, so yes. that's not just homers talking right. about Okay. <laughs> Nelson. Uh, Biden's mismanagement of energy markets. The president, in an absolutely amateur policy maneuver, is pumping oil now from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve into the market, asking Asian countries to do the same. Even if this works short term, the price of oil is determined by three things, demand, production, and storage. So prices were already falling this month because of demand concerns in Europe over COVID. So if you're selling off your storage, you actually help the price bounce back up, which we've seen a little bit already. A much better policy for the U.S. would actually be on the production end. Produce more shell oil, pump it into global well, markets. Don't we have the cleanest energy in the world to process? We do, and the easiest to process. I mean, what we need to be doing as a policy is pumping that oil into the to the markets. Uh, we don't need to be taking our oil companies to the FTC, claiming that there's collusion there. You know, they need to be converting our refineries, uh, in investing in our refineries to actually produce the cleaner product from the shale oil. That's not happening right Did now. Did you notice that the energy secretary at Granholm didn't know how many uh, barrels of oil we produce per day. That's right. And the, the, the figure does bounce around, but it's between, uh, depending on the pandemic, between 18 and 20 uh, million barrels a day. World production right now, or use right now, is around 96 and a half the million barrels The average a day. person is paying $1.29 more per gallon than they did this time last year. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Who's up? North Carolina Christmas tree growers. There's an 18-and-a-half-foot Fraser fir at the White House, courtesy of the father and son team of Rusty and Bo Estes of Peak Farms in Jefferson. They are the winners for the third time of the National Christmas Tree Association contest, which gets that treat to the White House. Good news for Christmas tree growers in this state. Who's down? President Biden, once again, I'm thinking about the High Point poll, High Point University poll that came out this week that showed he had just 35 percent job approval in North Carolina, 52 percent disapproval, to put it in context. Governor Cooper was at 44 percent approval, but his disapproval was 35 percent, so he's still above water. Jonah, my friend. Consumer spending is up. 
I mean, we saw the lines today, Black Friday, and when we're taping this, and it's just overwhelming. And for all the talk of inflation, which is a thing, and for all the talk about higher prices, Americans are flush with cash. They've been sitting at home for the last two years. They've been given money by the federal government. They're ready to spend. They're excited. And that is up. All the forecasts are saying this is going to be a very successful weekend for retailers. Uh, what's down is Americans' patience for COVID. I think we're seeing people get their boosters. I think we're seeing people get their vaccines. And they're saying, all right. This is it. This is life. Let's move on already. And we saw that with those astronomically long lines at RDU for travel. Donna? Yeah, I think people are ready for a normal life. Uh, one of the things I'm going to say is up is school choice in this budget. One of the lessons of COVID, of course, was a lot of parents looking over the shoulder of their children, watching what was happening in classrooms in this budget, this new North Carolina budget that Governor Cooper signed. Uh, the Opportunity Scholarship Program is broader. It's a little more money, about $5,900 per student. By the way, Cooper got a shout out on the budget in the Wall Street Journal. That's that is that's good news for our state certainly. Um, but it also means that more uh, foster children qualify now, and a lot more people can get in there and pick a school of their choice if their public school isn't working out for them. Uh, down, I'm gonna say Washington Democrats. We're seeing a lot of uh, whispering there in the hallways at the White House. Um, Amy Klobuchar organized a kind of thought leader group on how they're going to message the problems that they're having and the low approval ratings that the Biden administration. Nelson? First of all, Jonah, I have my booster, so I'm good. good <laughs> That's right, me too. Uh, good, good, good. Uh, on, the, on the retail side, Dollar Tree, a national retailer known for selling all sorts of convenience items for a buck. It's now in January going to be a buck and a quarter. That's a 25% increase on items from paper plates, foil plates, can of beans. We so shop if, there. If you are a senior, <laughs> if you are a senior coming in January, winter heat is going to be up, Medicare premiums are going to be up, and a can of niblets is going to be up 25%. So uh, that's going to be a problem. Is that a North Carolina okay. thing? <laughs> Corn. Headline <laughs> next week, Mitch. Uh, with the budget signed and redistricting maybe finished, lawmakers are going to try to wrap things up for the year. Headline next week. Discussions about the National Defense Authorization Act. That's going to happen in the Senate. Tell us more. This is, I mean, everything about whether it's salaries for, for uh, active duty, whether it's funding for different programs, okay. this is a big congressional bill that is uh, talked about and it has yet to be passed. It's been there for, they've been doing it okay. for the last decades. Headline next week. Candidate filing for the congressional races opens December 6th. I expect a lot of folks filing their paperwork. Nelson, headline next week. Biden announces diplomatic boycott of Beijing games. It's symbolic. Symbolic, but at least it's at least it's something to show that the U.S. Okay. is standing up. All right. That's it for us. Great job, panel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities and by Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.